Welcome to the seventh installment of The Pot Against America, our examination of the HBO series, The Plot Against America, based on the Philip Roth novel of the same name. We are your hosts, Rob Nyer and Jim Baker, and this time around, we'll be talking about the concluding part six of the series, which originally aired on April 20, 2020. Here's Jim Baker. Hey, Rob. Hi, Jim. It's over. What are we doing with our lives now? Well, uh, I have a thought, which I will save for the end of this episode. We'll see how this episode goes. Uh, that might influence my thought, my thoughts. But um, it is. I had the same. I had the same reaction last night. It's over. I can't believe it's over. It seems uh, uh, six weeks went by pretty quickly. Um, and I, I, I stand by what I said in the, our very first podcast, which is I'm glad they went six. I'm glad they didn't stretch to, it out. As opposed to stretching it to eight or ten. Because well, if they'd done that, in the hands of someone else, they would, have had to, they would have had to pad characters and maybe come up with some things that weren't in the book. And I don't know. I, I just didn't I, want to see that. I agree with that generally. And having now reread much of the book including the last 150 or so pages what's stunning to me is how the filmmakers and i think it's appropriate to describe them that way because this really felt like uh, a, a a long film it was made with that sort of at that sort of expense and with that sort of care and certainly the acting is as good as anything you would ever hope to see in a movie the filmmakers took ex- almost exactly what they needed to take from the book and left out what they needed to leave out. It really is quite striking how how, how many lines of p- dialogue were, were lifted directly from the novel. And they're the lines of dialogue you would want to be lifted. So I, I would agree with, with your basic sentiment. Um, somebody did, I mentioned on Twitter last night, we're, we're recording this the morning after the airing uh, I, I mentioned somebody mentioned on Twitter I, first I mentioned that that um, we were doing this podcast and someone basically said actually I'm not going to say basically I'll say what they actually said because I think I I think I have it here uh, finished it tonight the last 30 minutes were rushed and took huge leaps bounding to a confused and limp ending it's like they got bored with their story and wanted to just get to to happy hour Maybe that's what the book did. Pretty disappointing. I would disagree with, with, with any notion, any suggestion that the filmmakers were bored, um, and maybe we should wait to talk about the the, the ending ending, until later. Um, but I it did feel rushed, to me. And even though it was a long episode, it was an hour and I believe an hour and thirteen minutes. I I believe it could have been an hour and a half, might have been just a bit more effective. Which of course that's a movie length. But I believe that that it probably needed another ten or fifteen minutes to fill in a few of the the gaps. Uh, what do you think? Well, we know what the book is like. Yes. So, I mean, do you want to get into what the book does, which is kind of jarring? I think I think it's I think the headline of our episode essentially is is, is the is how the book ends relative to how the the, the show ends. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that first. We, we might we could spend twenty minutes on that, and then we'll see what else we, we want to talk about. Well, what Philip Roth does is, I don't know, about three quarters of the way through the book, changes the voice pretty much. He leaves the main characters and goes into sort of this third person description. It's like a historian writing. Correct. He steps out of it. Yes. And it's kind of jarring. And, you know, it took me a while to process it. I mean, this is the great Philip Roth. What What are you doing? Um, you know, it reminds me of the ending of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a first-person novel. And then in the last paragraph, it switches to the third person huh. for uh, for the character's death. And uh, it, it reminds me of that. It eventually veers back into the, the Levin family, or the Roth family in the book, and and gets back on track, but it's a it's a big departure. And uh, we listened. I listened to David Simon's podcast. I'm sure you did too. Mm-hmm. And he talked about addressing that and addressing it with Roth himself. 
<laughs> Roth basically said about one of the resolutions, he said, well, it's your problem now. Um, you know, Roth wasn't thinking in terms of how, how would someone film this. Right. So given the material, I think what they did was great. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed. I, I thought he was going to change everything because it just didn't seem like there was enough time left to do the book any service without changing it dramatically. And they did not. Well, they, and a lot of the history was left out. We get in the show, we get, we get mentions of the riots around the country, the right. Midwest and East in particular. Uh, we don't, we don't in the, in the show, in, in the, in the, in the show, uh, the rabbi is arrested. Uh, somehow, uh, Anne Mara Lindbergh is spirited away to Walter Reed, where uh, actually in the book she's put in a straitjacket for 24 hours. That doesn't happen in the show. But in the book, there are a number of arrests of high figures, high government figures, including right, like FDR Fiore, himself. And Fiorello LaGuardia. LaGuardia is arrested. Is arrested uh, too, Felix yeah. Frankfurter, a Jewish Supreme Court justice, is arrested. Uh, there, are, there are mass arrests of... of, of um, left-leaning politicians um, and, I suppose, presumed sympathizers to the Jewish cause. Uh, that, that, by the way, is highly problematic in the, as it, the story is told in the book because in, in, in both formats, Anne-Marie Lindberg Lindbergh goes on the radio and gives this uh, inspirational speech, essentially, uh, and everything just sort of changes and and you might watch the show and think now and i can understand why someone watching the show would think that there were gaps it's never clear what how lindbergh how how ann lindbergh's speech would move an entire government to change course so dramatically but it's even less credible in the book because the movement the anti uh the anti-democracy movement the, the police state is even more dramatic in the book. So if all this is happening, why would suddenly everything turn around? Who are the, who are the, the high government officials or the military people who are falling in line behind her and not the, the acting president? None of that is explained. I'm going to say it was General Joe Stilwell. <laughs> it just seems like someone would get on board with that. No, you're right. What is the mechanism for getting rid of this police state? Yes. It's, it's an ad hoc police state, but right. still, they're the ones with the guns, and they're the ones in power. Uh, right. Sort of a, a massive rev- revolution. How did that happen? Maybe we shouldn't worry about it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's poor storytelling. Yeah. Um, it, certainly in the book, it's it's which, and it's interesting because, and you've made this point before to me many times. Uh, there are problems that can be solved simply by dropping in a line or a paragraph, uh, in a novel Im- at least, um, or a page. And Roth just blew right past all that. We're supposed to assume that, that Anne-Marie Lindbergh has this incredible power. And just being honest about it, uh, the speech that he writes for her in the book is not particularly powerful. And the the talk she gives on the radio in the show is not pr- particularly powerful this is not uh, Barack Obama who by the way couldn't move millions either with a speech even though he's been given credit for doing things like that um, it's she's not uh, uh, Winston Churchill who by the way has been given more credit for his speeches than than the, the facts would probably merit my, my point is we never have any reason to believe that she would have this sort of power and yet in both the book and the show she does I agree it, it's a leap for for certain. <laughs> uh, it, it is. It's it's a big leap, but a bigger leap in the in the novel because so many more things would have to happen in the novel, given how deep the 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 police state conspiracy has gone. Probably what he needed was a George Marshall or someone to to jump into the foreground or, or someone on the on the right. Let's call it the right in this mm-hmm. circumstance. Someone on the right to say, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. Right. Because they could just turn around and do it to us in five years. Yes. Which is a parable for, t- for today. 
you know, you do these things, you, you play fast and loose with the, you know, it's it going to boomerang on you. Right. It has and, every, every opportunity to boomerang you in a few, on you in a few years. Yes. So I, I would say that it was rushed um, a, a little bit because we don't really understand how it turns around. Um, I think I'd like to save the very ending of the episode for the end of our, our, our episode. Um, but anything else I think is fair game. Okay. Um, one thing that I was really interested to learn because I just reread the end of the book uh, before, before I got on the line with you, uh, I was, I don't know if you remember this, the, the single most violent thing that happens that we see in the entire show is not the pogroms, um, or the riots, because we see very little of that. We only hear about it or we see it in the distance with, with fires off in the distance. Well, as, as, uh, Simon said in his podcast if one of the six main characters didn't witness it he couldn't show it yes and i totally respect that mm-hmm. um I mean, how many times have you seen something where they're going along in the first person uh or a third person for one one character and then all of a sudden we see people in another room making decisions about that person and that's the only scene in the entire m- movie or show where that happens that really bothers me right. so the fact that he stuck to his this rule impress me yes um but what was striking to me was that the uh the 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 most violent act or acts we see in the entire six episode run are two members of the same family fighting (laughs) each other and by the way uh for people who might people who haven't read the book in the book the fight is much worse than than we see in the show uh the injuries are far more grievous and it also and happens a lot earlier in yes, the arc much earlier it's not at the end and i found that choice fascinating I, I think it works perfectly well at the at nearly the end of the episode um um and oh there's another leap by the way the leap from alvin still seeming like a pretty good guy who just got railroaded into an awkward situation or situations at the end he seems to have gone into complete gangster mode (laughs) right well he always was kind of a gangster type i mean i mean he hung out with gangsters he worked for a gangster yes uh he threatened violence against the he 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 Offered to commit violence against people who were stealing from his boss. Yes, I don't think it was that big of a leap. But he didn't. He didn't seem like he seemed like just a normal guy who could have been also pumping gas at the filling station. And he doesn't seem like that in the in at, at the end of this episode at all. He he has made a transformation. He's driving a fancy car. He's wearing well, fancy clothes. Smoking a big cigar. Could, could we back up for a second? Yes. About the car. It's a Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> Plymouth, not a fancy car? Plymouth was the low end of the Chrysler Corporation. It <laughs> went Imperial, Chrysler, uh, DeSoto, Dodge, then Plymouth at the bottom. So he pulled up in the Plymouth and I said, no, he's got a Plymouth. And then and then they <laughs> started talking about, what? oh, you're driving up in a big fancy car. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he goes, it's not a Studebaker, which is another low end car. <laughs> See, that's why I need I need to be a paid car consultant on these shows. <laughs> but I, I found the fight fascinating because it, 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 it reminded me of a certain sort of stage drama that I've seen once or twice, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, I think True West might be the, the play that, that comes to mind. It's a Sam Shepard play about two brothers. And I'm almost certain, I saw it 20 years ago, but I'm almost certain there's a knockdown, drag-out fight. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of plays like that, right? Well, you have a brother. I don't. I mean, how many fist fights have you had with him as adults? Well, none, of course. Oh, well, there goes that theory. But we're not in the middle of a of a of, a, of an off Broadway play written by Sam Shepard either. It just it just <laughs> felt very it felt very dramatic that that scene, and it was played beautifully. I'm not saying I didn't right. buy it. Um, it just was. It's the first time we've seen something quite. We've seen hints of personal violence, and I guess the only thing that I would even that, that we've even seen remotely like that earlier in the series was 
the moment when 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 Beth slapped um, Sandy. And and that that of course is one of the one of the themes of, of as a parallel. Wouldn't it have been great when Evelyn and uh, Beth get into it uh, that they got into a fist fight? <laughs> that would have been a nice parallel. Rolling around on the ground. Yeah, out, out on the lawn. Pulling hair. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you didn't. You, so the the fight scene it was pretty brutal, and they got the they got they really they really got the the point of it which was and this was certainly in the novel when uh the stump has come off the the bottom of alvin's leg and in the book the stump is actually shattered which is is even a a greater indignity yeah who hits a one-legged man (laughs) come on i don't care how how obnoxious he gets and good god i i had because i had not read the book in quite a while I didn't realize, and I mentioned last week, I think, how pathetic Selden is. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it all dramatically it all works because it, it means that uh, Philip is stuck with this horrible guilt for the rest of his life, and it gives it Bess and, uh, um, oh, who's the father's name? Herman. <laughs> it gives them their 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 perhaps their their greatest moments uh, with Bess on the phone um, as their shots being fired outside and she thinks that Pogrom is coming for them and then and then Herman makes the uh, the hero's journey to Kentucky and back which by the way lasts a lot longer in the book and and has many more obstacles than in the show um, but that poor kid come on <laughs> what does he weigh like forty two pounds. What's his life like after this? And then, well, he'll find like-minded people. He'll he'll join a chess club. There's definitely a chess club in Newark, and uh, he'll proceed from there. Become a in the book, by the way, he's only in Newark for ten months, and then he goes off to Brooklyn to live with the aunt who is mentioned in the mentioned uh, in the episode. Well, he'll become a, a brilliant writer or something. I mean, the, the the world is full of people like that that have rough upbringings and uh, experience personal tragedy, are outsiders because of their physical appearance. Um, are we romanticizing this? Don't most of those I children see, turn into I see nothing but rainbows <laughs> and bright horizons for him. Oh my God! It's just so <laughs> pathetic, and he's just as pathetic in the book. Maybe not physically, um, but he has the same high voice, mistaken for a girl. Um, he he is seems a little dim, more like a six-year-old or a seven-year-old than a nine-year-old. I mean, it's just so sad. Poor little. He's a chess savant. <laughs> he doesn't have to <laughs> doesn't have to truck with uh, your your fancy language or anything, or grades. <laughs> Maybe that's Bobby Fisher as a child. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, but best on the phone with him. You know, if they, if they gave out Academy Awards, that would be that would be the th- scene that they would show in the Academy Awards. I think her talking him through that. Well, ordeal. they give Emmy awards, and I would assume she'll be nominated. And I, and we we've been talking. I, I've been. You've been talking her up a lot. I this thought- really puts her over the top. You think this was her? This, you think this topped the other great scenes that she's had? It might have. Yes. Um, because there was the scene when there was the scene when 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 Herman comes back comes home from the from the Winchell rally. Um, there was the scene where she does the the George and Gracie episode. Now, granted, that wasn't so dramatic, but I mean, there's just every almost every episode, I think, has an award worthy scene. Well, here's why. This impressed me so more than say a, a big dramatic outburst scene. Is that it required restraint, and she had to hold it together in spite of the fact that the world is crumbling outside her very window, and she has to hold it together for this kid, and not show any fear because kids sense that kids are like dogs that way, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you need to read my book. Kids are just dogs without fur. And other it's, uh, it's in the self self help section, <laughs> uh, 
And because she does that, she gets him through it. And she's thinking on her feet. She goes, let's contact the Wahinis. Um, did I say that right? I don't know. The, the, the family that, that Sandy had stayed with. Mahini. And she is just the uber mom at that point. Right. She's just completely in charge. And I think a lesser actress might have uh, hammed it up too much. Yes, I would absolutely agree. I mean, it, it, but I've said so many times about her that she just plays these complicated scenes, complex scenes, or scenes with complex emotions perfectly every time. It's just it's just amazing. Uh, and, you know, it's, I don't know if you watch Better Call Saul, which is just unbelievable, but the actress, I believe her name is Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim Wexler, uh, she's phenomenal. And, and everybody's talking about her, at least the people that I watch, because they watch Better Call Saul. She's great. But I've seen every season but the most recent one, the one that just ended. And granted, that's supposedly this is her finest work, but I, ha I don't find her character to ha be given as much to do dramatically as zoe kazan is given to do now I, and, you know there are different sorts of characters one is uh now 40 or 50 episodes into it to a to a series the other one had six episodes and it's more of a cinematic endeavor but i just don't see how anyone could 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 be better than than kazan has been well call your friends at the and i'm in love with the emmy awards <laughs> you're in love with her does your wife listen to this podcast she does not she couldn't oh. care less about this podcast. And I couldn't be more thrilled because I've now said two or three things over the course of our five and a half hours together, that six and a half hours together, that my wife might not like. So it's I have great freedom. Okay, so anytime I want something from you, I can just threaten to play her the tapes. And you'll have to come forth with the, the blackmail. <laughs> Besides, when, when you've got a crush on someone whose who's significant quality the character's quality is being unbelievably matronly. It's really too hard for your wife to complain a lot. <laughs> I love her because I see in her the great mother that you are. Or could be. <laughs> no, no, don't say could be. <laughs> say are. <laughs> uh, for the record, my wife is an incredible mother to our delightful five-year-old um, and she, I tell her that all the time because um, it's so clear and uh, I know it makes her feel good but she she's a wonderful mother uh, and I hope she's never has to be the mother that uh, Zoe Kazan has to be because that shouldn't be wished upon anyone well the way things are going yep so that we'll save that for the end um, <laughs> <laughs> so did you We've already run through most of my notes on this episode. Did you take any notes you wanted to talk about? You, you know, I had some notes. Uh, David Simon covered them. Yep. <laughs> uh, when she's talking about Lindbergh, she says, this man is unfit. He should not yes. be president. Yes. And uh, Simon said on the show, yes, I wrote that line intentionally. Yes. And um, when LaGuardia says at the... At the, the the service for Walter Winchell, who is assassinated in the in the show, it can't happen here. It is happening here. That's uh, that's another thing that is, you know, that's for today, right? And you know, David Simon has said he he made this as a parable for today, right? Whereas you know, someone like me would have made it because oh, it's cool. What would have happened if you know? Because I, I like what ifs. He made it to, you know, to make a statement. Right. But it, it's also true that it, it it works as an allegory for any moment in in human history, essentially. Because persecution of the other, et cetera, et cetera, has always happened and, and, and always will. There are only a few, and they really came out specifically, and I'm, it's quite possible that I'm forgetting something here or there, but... It, really only came out a couple of times explicitly in in I think in this last episode and you mentioned one or two of them right 
and I think the conclusion, and you listen to the podcast, so uh, to Simon's podcast, uh, the and we can skip ahead to the to the end. Uh, in you want to describe first how the novel ends in terms of politics and well, you just uh, you just read it, so you go ahead and do that. I did just read it. That's a good that's a good point. <laughs> that was a really unfair thing of me to ask. Um, in the novel, uh, just as in the the. The book, Anne-Marie Lindbergh goes on the radio and, and calls for, among other things, she calls for uh, essentially a special presidential election to happen in 1942, which I believe is only a month or so after she's speaking. Uh, and uh, I don't even know if that's if, if the Constitution allows for such a thing. I was and going again, to ask about that. I don't think you can do that. I think it's again, the... <laughs> Again, I don't know that, that 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 why the people who are currently running the country would allow that to happen, but it does happen in the book, and we find out the results. Um, FDR becomes well. First of all, the Democrats win an overwhelming overwhelming majorities in both the House and the Senate. FDR is reelected, and a month later, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. So basically. Everything is exactly the same, except World War. Our, the U.S. involvement in World War II begins a year later than in our timeline. Um, well, that's not at all. So we have a very tidy ending and a, 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 an optimistic right. ending and, of the novel. And in the book, earlier in the book, uh, the narrator, which is Philip, makes reference to Robert Kennedy as eternal attorney general in the future. And I said, well, okay, well, I guess things turn out okay then. I guess we return to our timeline at some point for that to happen. Right. right. And uh, we do. That's what happens in the book. And yet, in the show, it's... And we, you and I speculated about this. I, I think that given our times, neither, neither one of us ex really expected... A similar ending and we did not get a similar ending right in this one we get right up to the election and you're right I, I don't know the Constitution constitutionality of having a special presidential election I, we just don't do that here you the, the speaker of the house would become president right well and why wouldn't we, the vice president become president why why was he acting president and then all of a sudden he's just not around anymore who who well, they arrested him how did that they did yes yeah, and Burton K. Wheeler was was deposed, and so because presumably he bro he broke some laws, and somebody right. was able to marshal the support of right. the authorities to arrest him. And I don't think he named a vice president in that short time. Mm -hmm. like he didn't say, "Hey, Harry Truman," uh, or it wouldn't be Truman; it'd be Wendell Wilkie. Why don't you be my vice president? He's too liberal for for Wheeler. Right. But in the absence of a vice president or let's say the vice president was taken down with him then it would become the speaker of the house right, right. yep so correct then the speaker of the house would be president for two years then in 44 they'd have the next election right but in our in this world they have an election on november 3rd 1942 and it's roosevelt against some unspecified republican candidate and at the end we show everybody voting we're shown everybody voting, and uh, we're, sh we're shown some chicanery with the ballots. Uh, many, many ballots being burned. Uh, an entire voting machine being wheeled off by forces unknown. And at the end, we see Herman uh, listening to the radio, listening to the results, and that's it. We don't know what happens in the election. Right. So that timeline is not saved like it was in the book. And, and that was the exact moment... You know, the, the, the reference to Lindbergh as being unfit, that could slide right past people watching, I think. Um, but the ending is utterly, it's utterly ambiguous for their timeline, and it's utterly unambiguous for us watching now. Because clearly, in this election, everything hangs in the balance and nobody knows what's going to happen right 
And were Republicans known back then for ba- ballot box shenanigans? Wasn't that more of a Democratic thing in the in the old days? LBJ well, and the Chicago machine and, and... Yes, most famously, those those are the two most... and not Well, not just LBJ, but certainly Southern Democrats um, who had the power. So typically Southern Democrats would be stealing ballots from each other if there were ballot stealing to be done. And then, of course, we, we all have heard the stories about about the daily machine. I, I think just wherever there was a political machine, there was chicanery. Uh, and we, we hear most often about the Demo- Democratic machines. Yeah. Um, um, Frank, Frank Hague of Jersey City was a Democrat. And uh, he didn't invent corruption, but he perfected it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did you just make that up? That line? Yeah. It's about him? I've yeah. used it for other things. Um, oh. All right, well, yeah. it sounds like you just made it up, and uh, yeah. it could be in a biography or something of him, so nice work. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, and, of course, Simon talked about that on the podcast. Uh, someone actually suggested that to him. Again, he, he's very humble on the podcast and seems to be very generous in giving credit to other people for thinking of things that he wound up using in the show, and he said that there was a, a, an HBO executive who he's worked with for everything he's ever done for them, who I think he said just recently died. No, retired. And, uh, retired. Oh, okay, good. Good for him. Yeah. Um, um, and this executive told him when he read it or heard, or, or Simon told him that he wanted to do it, he said, this is how you have to end it if this show is going to be airing in 2020. And Simon said it took him, he had to think about it for an hour or after thinking about it for an hour, he realized, no, that's the only way I can end this sh- this right. this series. And it is in 2019 or 2021, maybe there's a different answer. But in, in the, the spring of 2020, of course, that's how it has to end. Right. And hey, for all we know, those were Democrats burning ballots. Absolutely. Putting Absolutely. Uh, putting Roosevelt over the top. That's right. No, we, we are given no indication of who's who's doing what. We just know that the the the. the the gears of democracy are being tampered with, and just and we know the gears of democracy right now are being being tampered with. Um, and you know, it's funny. Um, somebody might say, and maybe you would even. Say, I don't think you would. I think you would have said it already. But somebody might say, this sh- a show like this, or really any sort of real drama, any art, should be timeless. And when you make it at especially the end so blatantly about our moment all of a sudden it isn't timeless and there's i think we both believe that's true to a point but i also think i heard a, a podcast recently and i might have mentioned this earlier if not on our podcast to you in a conversation but there is a these days there's so m- there are so many ama- brilliant people making great television drama that you really need a reason for something to exist. What you need, to, you need to make an argument for why it should exist now, right? Right. Uh, and a lot of shows don't do that, but those don't really resonate either. The ones that resonate are the ones that feel of this moment, even if they're not set in this moment. That's a good point. I have to rethink my entire approach to pitching television ideas. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, too, <laughs> uh, you think about we, we want things to last, right? But uh, there's so much to watch. Uh, how many people are going to go back and watch the, the plot against America five years from now? It will still be well worth watching, but there will be 20 other shows that are roughly as good, um, maybe better, that have come out in the years since. We, you can't keep up. So I, my habit is... I, I watch almost nothing that's, unless it's new. I mean, I still haven't gone back and watched The Sopranos, for example, which is one of, obviously, amazing. I haven't gone back and watched Homicide, which is one of my favorite TV shows, and by the way, another uh, David Simon-associated vehicle. Um, I, I just, I just, I want to see what is new. Um, so it, it, there's a bit less of a reason for something to be timeless, I think, if we're not going to watch it again anyway. Well, I just rewatched the entire run of 30 Rock. Yeah, and really? The whole thing yes. already? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, 
Liz Lemon has a very prescient line in it. She says, I think we're headed for a new golden age of scripted television. <laughs> Which at the time was a joke because everything was reality TV back in probably 2013 or 12 when she said that. Right. And, and she called it. Here we are. Well, let, me ask you, let me ask you this. What I find is that I have zero interest or nearly zero. I did go back and watch... No, I still haven't watched all of Deadwood again. There's another example. Maybe my, it might be the show that I admire the most that's ever been made is Deadwood. Um, in part because Al Swearingen is just such a delightful, <laughs> profane character. Um, but I haven't gone back and watched every episode of that either. And what I was getting at was that um, I have almost zero interest in watching even the greatest dramas again. But I will happily watch... 30 Rock again, or I've been rewatching Community, which I just adore. And it's just as fresh and enjoyable. Uh, and I, part of it is, I, I'm not sure that as much great comedy is being made. Now, I say that, and have, I haven't seen Fleabag, which people rave about. Uh, so I'm probably just missing a lot of stuff. You can't know everything that's going on. Right, Here's the test. The, you can know when, the best things. When you have a show that you like, and you ask someone if they've seen it, and they don't, and they haven't. And you ask and you ask and you ask 50 people and none of them have seen it. But it's a show you've dedicated a lot of time to. And conversely, when people ask you, have you seen this show? I love it and say, I've not only even not seen it, I've never heard of it. And they're insulted and they start to guilt you out. Why haven't you seen it? How could you have not seen that yet? That's what, that's what television has become now. I, I think, I don't, I'll, I'll go halfway with you. I think it's impossible to see everything that's worth seeing. I, I think it's also quite difficult to not have heard of something that's truly worth seeing. And I, I understand this is all incredibly subjective. But, no, I haven't seen Fleabag, but I've heard of it. I don't think you've watched Better Call Saul, but you've certainly heard of it. I mean, The reason I haven't watched it is I feel like I need to close out Breaking Bad and I still have a season to go on that. Even though I know you can watch because Saul's a prequel. Right. I think it's okay to do that, to watch it. Well, sure. If, if, yeah. if you're still planning to watch oh, I have both of those things, then, yeah. then then there's no reason not to. But my point, there, there still is a, and again, I'm being subjective, and I know there there are shows that people absolutely love that I have not heard of. I understand that. But there are some shows that reach a certain critical mass with the critics where if you pay attention to these sorts of things, you have heard of it, even if you haven't taken the time to watch it yet. Agreed. And no, we can't, we can't keep up with, with everything. And I do worry there must be some sitcom uh, or sitcom adjacent content that is great that I just, I tried to watch the, the Mrs. Maisel, Maisel movie or show and I, I understood that it was good, but I wasn't compelled to keep watching. And that, that happens a lot. When really? I watch new things. Oh, I love it. Yep. I love I love every minute of it. Really? Maybe you had to grow up in, in the New York area to, to, to get a real appreciation of it. I don't know. It probably would help. Uh, I mean, and I, um, I didn't dislike it. I just, the bar for me is so high. I watch so little TV. I average probably, well, my wife and I have been watching. Uh, the new season of Bosch, which, hey, there's a show that I love that isn't really all that lovable. I just really, it's just right at my alley. Uh, so we watch an hour of that every night, um, for at least for the 10 episodes. We have seven more to go, I think. And and But I average at most an hour of TV. I just don't have time to watch more than that. So there's no way that I can see everything. Who could? There are something TV like credits? 520 English language programs available <laughs> right now. I'm it's, serious. That, that's, like, that's a rough number that I heard like a year ago. A TV critic could watch everything that's really good. Uh, but m mere mortals, no. We can't, we can't see even the best stuff. All and there's stuff. this thing called reading, too, that we still <laughs> like to do. Yes, and I'm way behind. And we're not even encumbered with baseball right now. <laughs> that's true. Don't have to carve out any time at all to watch baseball, process the information from it, <laughs> deal with fantasy baseball. Um a lot of time, a lot of lot of lot of holes to fill. Yes. 
Did you have more notes on this episode? I'm trying to think. I feel like there's something that I... What did you think about the whole radar, whatever that was called? Story well, that's the part that uh, that David Simon was talking about where, where he asked Philip Roth, well, what happens? He goes, well, that's your problem now. So that's how that was his, his solution. There, there is no solution in the book to what actually happens to Lindbergh. Right. There's the crazy conspiracy theory that Rabbi Bengelsdorf comes up with because at that point he's nuts. He's, he's broken. Uh, he's lost his congregation. He's lost his standing in the community. He's lost his national standing. So he comes up with this insane thing about, about the Germans kidnapping the Lindbergh baby before the, the Nazis kidnapping the baby, before they came to power, because I believe that happened the year before. Was it 1932 was the Lindbergh baby? I believe so, uh, yes. Yeah, so the Nazis came to power in 1933. So to believe that conspiracy theory, you'd have to under, think that they were thinking so far ahead that they were kidnapping babies in the United States before they even came to power. <laughs> so, you know, he's lost it. So you've got the crazy in the book, but you don't have the actual. And right. uh, and Roth said to, to David Simon, we don't, you know, you got to come up with something. So I thought that was pretty good. It, it, it called back to what, he, you know, he obviously came up with that You know, this, this just on. occurred to me. Uh -huh. You know when they have the big fight at the end? Yes. Alvin mentions something about your, your Jewish Yahweh. Do you remember that? Having somehow plucked Lindbergh from the, from the earth? Mm -hmm. I made that second part up, but he did mention the Jew, your Jewish God or something. Well, that's what, that's what Roth uses, essentially. Yes. They're not all, they're not all Jews that do it. No, but, in, but no what, I, what I mean is in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in terms of removing Lindbergh from the map, we don't know who does it. Right. It's just in the magical, book. You mean. In the book. In the book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that essentially what happens, and, and of course Alvin knows that it, that's not what happened because he was involved somehow. What What is the mechanism involved here, though? Did, did you get any? There's no real clue as to, even though we know there's some technology being used, how would that result in Lindbergh's plane disappearing? Well, if he's flying the beam, which is what that was, it's the beam that the, the planes follow. They don't. Uh -huh. do, I don't know if they do that anymore. But that was big technology back then. Uh, they could have flown him into a mountain. Got they it. could have flown him straight into the ground, or caused him to land, thinking he was landing at I don't know Scranton Airport, and then they just meet the plane and shoot him. Got it. See, I uh, thought the beam was used to track airplanes, not to guide airplanes. I guess I missed that at some point. Uh, maybe I'm misinterpreting it. But, but that I mean, it's, that ca it's called single... flying. It's called flying the beam, right? Sure. No, that yeah. that's a different. That that is a thing. I didn't didn't I didn't make the connection between that particular equipment and flying the beam. But there's there's probably that, some radar historian out there right now with his head in his hands. What are these but, two idiots talking yes, about? Yes. <laughs> Should have there there some research could have been done and was not. So uh, I'll take the blame. That th that whole plot line was the single. I think. Easily the the, the 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 biggest invention Simon made, and uh, obviously it comes into play in this last episode in a huge way. But it, it's a callback to what it was. I think it was episode or part three, maybe, when uh, Alvin is trained in this technology. Which, uh, by the way, that wouldn't have happened either. He he, to, he wouldn't have become an expert in the short amount of time he was training. But that, <laughs> it was the single. We and I and I already complained about that, but. It, it is the only real plot device of any importance that I think that Simon introduced into the into the show. My father told me a story. My father was in the army during Korea, but he was never sent to Korea. So one day I asked him. He said, "Oh well, I I had been trained on this radar system, and they didn't want me coming going anywhere near the the Chinese. So he stayed in in New Mexico, learning this radar system. So I, I see what you're saying." I've been reading a. I just finished recently a book about uh, uh, who was the who was the big blowhard who ran the OSS. Wild Bill Donovan. Yes, Wild Bill Donovan. He routinely he basically insisted on landing with the troops <laughs> a, a few times, especially Sicily and um, uh, Anzio. And you know he could have been captured both times. Uh, he wasn't that far from the from the from the lines, especially especially Anzio, where they almost overran well, the beachhead. Right, 
Or was that Salerno that was almost overrun? I always get those two mixed up. No, Anzio was the, where they really ran. They just they landed and then didn't break out. Right. And the, the Germans surrounded the, the landing area, and it, it got pretty hairy there for a little while. But can you imagine if uh, if Donovan had been captured? Uh, <laughs> it could have happened. I just hope he had a cyanide pill on him. He did. Actually, he did carry. I believe he did carry. Always carry a cyanide pill. Okay. You don't have to lose any sleep over it then. Right. Okay. He, he would have done the right thing. <laughs> Uh, more notes. Let's see what do I have here. Um, uh, <laughs> there was a great line, which is not in the. Maybe it is in the book. It is in the book, I think, where when uh, Evelyn comes looking for sanctuary with mm-hmm. Bess, and she says, "Why don't you call Von Ribbentrop?" <laughs> that was cold. That yeah, was that really was cold. that was great. <laughs> yeah, and I like the way Winona Ryder comes apart at the seams and. Her hair's all out of place, and mm-hmm. suddenly the glitz and glamour is gone. But I, I think she comes out okay in the end. I mean, and in the, in the, in the novel, um, uh, the rabbi is released from from prison, of course, along with everybody else, and he winds up writing a, a huge best-selling book after the war about his time with Lindbergh. Right. Plus, he's old enough that he could almost retire from actively running a congregation. And yes. he clearly lived in a mansion, so... How did that happen? Is that, is that what rabbis get? No. No, I think... <laughs> I, I, doesn't he have old money? He must. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of his old money, I... I through a careful gleaning of the credits, I discovered the single best job in show business, at least in recent years. <laughs> you want to guess what it is? Uh... John Turturro's accent coach. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, isn't that what um, Keenan Michael Key's wife does? I don't know. Yeah, he talks about how all these English actors are always coming to his house to learn how to speak American <laughs> and take jobs away from him and fellow American <laughs> actors. <laughs> Speaking of Alvin. Yeah. Who is, who is fantastic. Uh uh, any any stand any uh, standout performances for you other than 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 Zoe Kazan? Well, I was thinking next week maybe we could do like an award show. Ooh, good idea for the show, and uh, that'll give us time to think about it and come up with some awards. You know, best scene, uh, that kind of thing. Wow, best scene. That's a tough one. Uh, okay, we could do that. Um, I also. See, I was going to propose a bonus episode, and I expected you to be reluctant, and I was going to offer some inducements, but since you brought it up, you have zero p- bargaining positions, so I you, kind of stuck. You proposed the, bar- the bonus episode like three episodes ago. Oh, okay. I forgot about that. And it is one of the inducements you want me to sing? Is that one of the inducements? Yes. Oh, yep, okay. yep, yep. And write, write, write a theme song. <laughs> for, the, for the podcast uh, with music uh, not fully orchestrated you can use stock if you want um, I want to talk uh, there are I want to talk about some some reactions to the show on our next episode for example I think I mentioned to you I know I mentioned to you maybe not on the podcast that uh, Charles Lindbergh's one of his grandsons has a podcast with his wife uh, and they uh uh, it's interesting. I'll just say that um, they've done it. They've devoted a couple of their episodes to the 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 plot against America. The first of those was before it even came out, and then the second was, I think, also before it came out. Or maybe right when the just when the first or second. Well, it's always came best out. to to make your accusations before you've seen the product. I, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I find that to be best. <laughs> but they go into some detail about whether or not Lindbergh was an anti-Semite and I think it's worth and I think it's a good question um, for us to talk about even though that really wasn't the point of the show I, I think it's a it's an interesting question and I also think um, I, I don't know if you remember but uh, Roth at the end of the novel has a long section about the actual historical figures, which is really interesting, and I think a real service to his readers. 
Um, and I thought I'd reread that and we could maybe find some grist in there for for discussion. Um, and I, I saw I, I there was another podcast that I thought would be fun to talk about too. And also maybe we could uh, do a little research into the reviews of the show and see if we think we missed anything or somebody else missed something. So there's, I think there's definitely an hour's worth of material or close to an hour's in, in a wrap-up. Right, and we can revisit the the other what-if shows that we talked about and, and shows and books that we talked about in the first episode. Yes, I've been, see how I have a book called What If, all about military history and throughout throughout all of history, but there's a couple chapters on World War II. And that's I the book I sent you. Run those by. Oh, I was wondering where that came from. See, Jim Jim just strayed from the script a little bit. He asked me before we started recording if I had received a book from him. I said I had not, but a book did arrive at my home with no attribution. I didn't know where. I thought maybe I just ordered it. Who knows? So thanks, Jim. It's I was awesome. wondering why these checks were coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the book arrived. I have read a couple of chapters, the two chapters on World War II. I wanted to run them by you. Have you read the book yourself? I have. I've definitely read. I haven't read it all because I think it's like a twelve hundred pages. But I've read all the yes. World War Two chapters. And in the first episode, I talked about a scenario where the Germans could win the war, where they they take the Holy Land, uh, they go through Palestine and go through Egypt, and they they don't invade the Soviet Union. Well, I couldn't remember where I, I got it from. I got it from that book. That's John Keegan's chapter in the book. Right. So you know, John Keegan, the great, the late great um, British military historian right so i wanted to attribute that properly great well we're we are on the same page we have many things to discuss next week uh and i think unless you have anything else i think uh, i'll let you send us off okay so this concludes episode seven of the eight episode series the pod against america our music is johnny dresden's teutonic tinged version of telstar the Joe Meek penned hit from 1962. Join us, Rob Nyer and Jim Baker, next week for our final installment. Thanks, buddy. That was great. Take care.